This is the word of God. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. But Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know what I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, an an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them. To be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each, other, each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her, to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, some incredible words that we read there uh, in, in the Gospel of John. I just pray that, we, that you would bless the reading of that, uh, and that we would be attentive, our hearts and minds open to what it is you have to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome again to, uh, to New Springs Church. Uh, just yesterday, I think it was, uh, my wife shared with me a meme from Facebook which said, uh, uh, welcome to August 82nd, meaning that this seems like it's a never-ending summer here in South Florida right now. It's just been blazing hot all day, every day. Maybe that's why our AC isn't working. It just couldn't take the heat. But uh, here we are, worshiping, praising, ready to go regardless uh, like Jimmy shared with you at the beginning, if it's your first time, please fill out a Connect card. We'd love to give you a gift and uh, connect you with people who, um, uh, who might be able to help you in this journey of faith. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have some in the back. We would love for you to grab one of those. It's our custom to be constantly in the text because we believe that uh, we're here to hear from God. Um, so this morning, we're continuing our story series, and sadly enough, we've only got three weeks left. So this week, next week, the week after, uh, and, there, and then we're done. And what you just heard, uh, to me, is one of the greatest passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. I don't know if you've ever given much thought to uh, a place or a time in history that you would love to be in if you could ever be there. And for me, without contest, it's in the room with Pilate interrogating Jesus Christ. If I could have been a soldier in that room, a fly on the wall, I would love to have been there to hear how that conversation went. Such a powerful conversation of Jesus revealing exactly who he is and subverting expectations. So two weeks ago, Jimmy was up here and brought the word to us from Malachi. And at that point in Israel's history, they had become a large nation. They had gone through two periods of exile with Assyria and with Babylon. God worked through a pagan king in Persia to allow the Israelites to be free and go back to their homeland. And once they got there, they took on an attitude of presumption. 
They believed that God was always going to take care of them due to their heritage. Simply because they were born as Israelites, God would bless them. But last week we looked at John chapter 1 and we were, we were introduced to the word, Jesus Christ. He's fully God, he's fully man, and he makes abundantly clear that the way to God and the way to be a child of God is by faith. And so those who have faith in the Son are the true children of God. It's not about heritage, it's not about culture, it's not about race, it's not about gender, it's not about socioeconomic status, it's about faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus being fully God meant that he has the authority to forgive you of your sins. That's why we worship him. And Jesus being fully man means that he overcame temptation, he overcame sin, and ultimately he overcomes death in order to be an acceptable sacrifice in our place. And so now this week we look at how it is that Jesus did that. Uh, this is the part of Jesus' story where he's on trial for crimes that he's being accused of in front of the Roman government. And hopefully by the end of today we'll see that we worship a crucified king whose kingdom is not of this world. We're going to do it in two points. We're just looking at an unexpected kingdom and then we're going to look at an unexpected king. And if you would bear with me. I've been sick for like a million years now. I still am today. Hopped up on lots of medication, but hopefully I'll make it through uh, the message. So at this point in, uh, in history, the Roman Empire is, is, is over much of Europe uh, and much of Asia. And the king who reigns over uh, Israel at the time is the second emperor of Rome. His name is Tiberius Caesar. He's the successor to a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. You see both of these guys named in the Gospel of Luke. reason I bring that up is in many ways Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, would be the kind of emperor that the world would look to as being ideal. If you want a king, you want an emperor to rule well, you want a guy like Caesar Augustus. Here's some of the things he did. First, he was a brilliant military strategist. Uh, he, won, uh, he won battles that were difficult with wise tactics in order to expand the territory of Rome. He was a visionary leader, created the famous Roman road system. Uh, if you've been to Rome, many of those roads still exist today. Many of the public buildings that are fascinating, like the Colosseum and Circus Maximus and all of those things, they came up under Caesar, Caesar Augustus's reign. And lastly, he successfully kept order. If you think about just the mass of land that the Roman Empire covered, to be able to stop any kind of insurrections or revolutions was truly remarkable. He set up a system of police and firefighters and order so that there was peace throughout the land. And so the Israelites, they're looking at this Caesar who rules over them and rules over much of the known world, and they're thinking that when they read the scriptures, God is promising them a king like that, someone who's going to win battles, who's going to build a great infrastructure in their city, who's going to collect taxes, and who's going to make Israel a dominant empire across the world. That's what they expected. But as we know in life, sometimes what actually happens and what you expected are polar opposites. And here in these verses, we see what's presented to us is not an emperor with an impressive list of accomplishments. That's not who Jesus is. We don't get a ruler who has acres of conquered land to boast about. But instead, what we get is a crucified king whose kingdom is not of this world. And so let's look at this kingdom, an unexpected kingdom, our first point. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has been delivered over to Pontius Pilate. 
Uh, Pilate is the, the governor, the Roman governor over Judea at this time. If you remember last time, we talked about Judea being the southern region of, of Israel. And so Pilate has been appointed to be the governor of that region. Jesus, at this point in the narrative, has been betrayed by one of his 12 disciples, Judas. And he had given him over to the Jewish council to be put on trial for crimes of blasphemy. Now, what blasphemy means is speaking against God or representing yourself as God when you aren't him. So the Jewish council, they say Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. We want to put him on trial. Now, again, I said that Roman, the Roman Empire rules over it all. And so under Roman law, the Jewish council doesn't have authority to crucify Jesus himself. That's important because what they have to do is they have to come up, come up with sinister and, you know, and sly ways to try and get Jesus trumped up on charges so that the Romans would execute him. They're not allowed to do it, so they have to create this picture of Jesus that seems like he's a threat to Rome so that a Roman governor would look at Jesus and say, you know what? This man deserves to die. So that, that's important to understand. That's what's going on behind the scenes. The Jews want to create a picture of Jesus so that the Romans would kill him. They believe that the Romans would do that. And so the passage that Jimmy just read for us, beginning in, Roman, in, in John 18, verse 33, we have Jesus and we have Pontius Pilate in this room, in, Pon in Pontius Pilate's quarters, where he's interrogating him. And at this moment, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And in this conversation, we see that Pilate and Jesus, they have this, this back and forth dialogue that references king or a kingdom over 16 times. It's not subtle. It's the theme of the text. Is Jesus the king of the Jews or is he not? See, Jesus being accused of being a king and leading an anti-Rome uh, uprising is what Pilate's looking for. He's interviewing a guy that he's trying to see, is this a revolutionary leader that we need to be concerned about and we need to execute? But the portrait of Jesus that Pilate gets is something entirely different than what he was expecting. See, maybe you've been in a situation yourself where something doesn't meet or maybe it even exceeds your expectations. Maybe you've sat down with a boss and you expect a difficult conversation, but by the end of it, you've gotten yourself a raise and a promotion. That's pretty good. Maybe you've had to have a difficult conversation with a friend and you're expecting them to be contentious and uh, you sit down, you chat with them and it doesn't go as expected. They're actually happy with you and, thing, and good things come out of it. Maybe you've pulled up, oh, this happened to me recently, maybe you've pulled up at the fast food line uh, and the car in front of you has already paid your bill. Unexpected. That's a good day. Fries and they're free. I'll take that. Or maybe it's the flip side. Maybe something unexpected has happened where you expected something good, something delightful, and something negative happened. Whatever the experience was, at least you get in part that Pilate is expecting one thing and he's going to get something entirely different. See, he's probably expecting a violent and antagonistic, brave man who wants to step up and defy the Roman government. Maybe you picture in your mind someone like a Malcolm X or a Che Guevara, someone who rallies the people, weaponizes them, and says, let's go out and start a revolution. That's not what Pilate got at all. Jesus is very clear in the text to tell Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my soldiers and my followers would fight for me, and you would stand no chance. 
He even tells Pilate, you have no authority unless it was given to you from above. My kingdom, in fact, is not of this world. My kingdom is entirely different than what you expect. See, over Jesus' three years of ministry, last week we covered Jesus becoming flesh, and now we've skipped a great deal over to Jesus' crucifixion. But in between his ministry, he's demonstrating exactly what the kingdom of God is like and exactly what kind of a king he is. See, no propaganda about overthrowing the, the powers that be. Uh, Jesus never weaponizes. He never says, let's get our swords and kill off the government. That's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. Instead, first, Jesus establishes a kingdom which demonstrates his authority over sickness. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is met with a man who's covered in leprosy. And Jesus heals that man so that he's no longer a leper. Later on in the same chapter, he meets a man who's paralyzed. Jesus tells the man to rise up and walk. In Luke chapter 6, he restores a man who had a withered hand, causes it to grow back and, and be restored. Throughout the Gospels, it doesn't take you long to read, but you see Jesus moves along, he gives sight to the blind, he gives hearing to the deaf, and he even raises the dead causing us to think, what kind of king is this? See, earthly kings, they have authority over people, and they have authority over lands. What kind of a king has authority over disease, has authority over sickness, has authority over paralysis? See, Jesus is a different kind of king. Second, he demonstrates his authority over demons. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in Capernaum. He rebukes an unclean spirit to come out of a man. Later on, he commands a legion of demons, one of the famous stories where this man, he's convulsing by a graveyard and shouting things and harming himself, and Jesus tells the demons to get up and get out of the man, and the demons, afraid, they said, hey, can we go into this herd of pigs? And they jump into a herd of pigs, and they run off the side of a mountain because Jesus told them to. He cast a demon out of a young boy who had been possessed since he was a, uh, since he was a child. See, what kind of king is this who comes in not establishing lands and taxation, but tells demons to leave possessed bodies and they obey him? This is a different kind of king. Thirdly, we see Jesus establish his kingdom authority over nature. We read stories about Jesus walking on water. The famous story in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. The disciples are on the surface. They're terrified. They're shuddering. They're afraid. They don't know what to do. They call out to Jesus. He wakes up from his nap, gets up on the deck, and commands the storm to stop. And the thunder and the clouds and the lightning are obedient to the voice of Jesus Christ. He takes uh, a couple of loaves of bread and fish, multiplies it to feed thousands of people, walks past a fig tree that wasn't bearing fruit and rebukes it, and the fig tree dies. What kind of king is this who commands authority not over people, but over nature? Tells nature what to do. This is a different kind of king. But ultimately, Jesus establishes his authority over righteousness, something that we don't even have power over. We don't have power over our own righteousness. No one does. No king, no matter how much authority he has, whether he be an elected president or an authoritative dictator, he can't control your righteousness or your status before God. But here comes Jesus Christ, who speaks with authority to forgive sin and preach the authoritative word of God as God. One of the greatest examples of this is Matthew chapter 5 uh, through 7, uh, which is the Sermon on the Mount. 
And we hear Jesus run through some of the commandments that God had established in the Old Testament. And Jesus, speaking with authority, says, hey, murder is not about you taking the life of someone else. It's about the anger that's, in with, that's within your heart. We hear Jesus say with authority, adultery isn't about you cheating on your spouse physically with someone else, but it's about that lustful thought that you had when you looked at someone with sexual intent in your heart. Jesus points out that God's kingdom is established in the hearts of those who follow him. Furthermore, Jesus establishes in Matthew chapter 13 that the kingdom of God can be, can be compared to a farmer casting seed along the ground. And the seed lands in good soil, and it multiplies 30 and 60 and 100 fold. See, the impression that we get out of that is seeds are subtle. They're quiet. It's a large movement that starts real quietly and unexpectedly. Furthermore, he compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Little insignificant seed that grows into a giant tree where birds and other, uh, and other animals nest. That's what the kingdom that Jesus Christ is establishing is like. See, they represent well. This is an unexpected kingdom that Jesus Christ came to establish first in the hearts of those who follow him. And so looking at Jesus in this room, Pontius Pilate very quickly comes to the conclusion, this isn't a king like what I would expect. He's not commanding armies. He doesn't have servants feeding him. He doesn't have a harem of concubines. Instead, he commands the waves. He commands the winds. He commands diseases. And he commands sin and demons out of the human experience. This is a king with total authority. So what is it that Pilate saw in Jesus? As he's looking at this man and not seeing a revolutionary, what is it that he sees? He sees an unexpected king which is our second point. If you look on in chapter 19, you see the way Pilate and his soldiers treat him. Imagine you're, you're a Roman guard, uh, you're the Roman governor, and you have all of these accolades, you've risen to this position of power, and you're looking at this man who you believe is here to overthrow the government that you've helped to establish, or at least you're a part of. And when you realize very quickly that this isn't a warrior, Pilate starts to take on a mocking tone. See, after having brought Jesus out, and Jesus is rejected by his own people. See, Pilate says, you know what? It's our custom on Passover to release to you a prisoner. And what Jimmy just read, the crowd shouts, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And they want to crucify Jesus. So, and so what Pilate does, he takes Jesus and he beats him. There's three types of beatings that the Romans were known for unleashing, each of them with increasing severity. It's probable that at this point in Jesus' trial, he receives two of these beatings. He receives one now, and he receives one later when the, when the verdict comes down that he is to be crucified. The more brutal punishment would have involved whips that had pieces of glass and bone fragments tied at the end so that when they connected with Jesus' body, they would tear the flesh from the bones, causing excruciating pain. See, the goal for the Roman soldiers giving such a, a violent beating was they wanted to hasten the crucifixion. They didn't want a man hanging from the cross for hour upon hour upon hour. They wanted him dead quickly, get him down, throw him into a tomb, and be done with it. The soldiers proceeded to slap Jesus, spit on him, mock him, make fun of him. They gave him a crown of thorns, which they intended to be an insult, pressing it into his skull with, blo with blood pouring out of his forehead. They wrapped a purple robe around his shoulders, the robe sticking to the wounds that, that he had just gotten from the whips. 
purple being the color of royalty, and then mockingly, they bow down and they exclaim to Jesus, Hail, King of the Jews. The blasphemy was on another level. See, the irony here is that the Jews have put Jesus up on trial for what they believe to be blasphemy, yet they've handed him over to a Gentile government who's mocking the God of the, of the universe with insults and blasphemy of their own. Pilate takes Jesus out and displays him for, before the people and very sarcastically proclaims, behold the man. See, what Pilate intends to communicate there is, here's this man that you said was such a threat to our government that we had to crucify him. Look at him with his crown of thorns. Look at him with his wounds. Look at him with no army. Behold the man who poses no threat to our government. And with more sarcasm, he later exclaims, behold your king. To which the Jewish crowd responds, sealing their fate, we have no king but Caesar. See, if you remember a few weeks ago, we studied the dominion of God and kingship and David. And we remember back in Deuteronomy, God said, you may elect for yourself a king, but not a king like the other nations. Yet here are the people of God who have been showered with the blessings of God. They've been given the word of God. They've been given his son. They've been given prophets. They've been given the promised land. And they say, we reject your king. Give us Caesar. We don't want Jesus. And so as I look at that, that story, this sad account of the council, the Jewish council rejecting Jesus, Pilate looking at Jesus and feeling a sense of mockery, the soldiers looking at Jesus and feeling the same thing, I'm wondering what's going on through their mind. And first, when I look at the Jewish council, what I believe is they saw Jesus to be a threat to their power and their control. See, everyone looked to the Pharisees as being the religious authority, the ones who were elite, the people who were closest to God, the people who really got it. If I want to know about God, I speak to a Pharisee or I speak to a council member, and they'll tell me. And they saw Jesus Christ as being a threat to that kind of a power. See, few things are more, in, more challenging to us as human beings than to be faced with a situation where we have to give up our own power and we have to give up our own control. If you remember Pharaoh in Exodus, when he saw the threat of the Israelites growing larger and larger and larger, he said, kill the male, the male babies. King Herod, earlier in Matthew's gospel, same thing. He hears of news of this king being born in Bethlehem. He says, I'll have no king. Kill, kill off the male babies. See, oftentimes we look at that story and we, we try to identify with the shepherds or the wise men. I think what's more realistic is we're Pharaoh. We're Herod. Any threat to power or control that we see, we want it eliminated right away. Friends are willing to stab each other in the back when power and control is threatened. Spouses will betray one another. See, the inner human sinfulness and wickedness, I believe, rises to its ugliest levels when we believe that our power and our control is threatened on any level. But the great irony of it all is we aren't in control over anything. Think about the story here. The Roman soldiers think that they control this outcome. Pilate, he's conniving, trying to do things with Jesus that will get him more praise uh, with his authorities, and yet they're in control over none of it. God had a plan throughout it all. The Jewish council themselves, they're convinced that they had concocted the perfect plan. They said, ah, we found this man who claims to be the king of the Jews. 
We're going to present him as a king to the Roman government, get him crucified, and we will maintain power and authority. How foolish. What a stupid thing to do. See, all they did was inadvertently bring about their own just condemnation. Now, every one of those council members have to stand before God and say, we killed your son who you sent to save us, the son who brought salvation to the entire world. See, their wickedness made them objectively guilty before a holy God. They didn't want to give up power. They didn't want to give up control. It sealed their fate. And so my question to all of you is, how are you doing with power and control? I believe that the number one reason that people don't come to faith in Jesus Christ is not wanting to relinquish power. We want authority over our own lives. You want to captain your own ship. You don't want anybody else telling you what to do. And so what ends up happening when, when we approach church, people enter in, they meet Jesus Christ, and they start to think, oh, this God is going to start to tell me what to do with my finances? I'm out. Oh, this God's going to tell me what to do with my sex life? I'm out. This God's going to tell me how I'm supposed to raise and conduct my family? I'm out. We don't want to relinquish power. We want to hold on to our control. And so we reject Jesus Christ, and we end up just like this Jewish council, standing before a holy God, having to give, a, having to give account, why did you crucify the king that I sent to save you? And like the Pharisees, you, if you take that position, your power is your own. Your control is your own. You run your life, and no God's going to tell you how to do anything you will face the same fate that the Pharisees ended up with. Secondly, Pilate and his soldiers, what's going through their mind as they mock Jesus? They saw Jesus Christ and they said, no way is this possibly a king who's starting a revolution. He is not a threat. He's beaten, he's bloodied, he's wearing a crown made of thorns, and he hasn't said much. This guy's a joke. And so they throw a crown of thorns on his head, the purple robe, and they think it's funny. It's almost the picture of... Uh, of the college seniors hazing the freshmen as they come into the fraternity, or the rookies on a team, and you know the elder statesmen of that team hazing them and making fun of them and teasing them. And here are the soldiers, they see Jesus Christ, and they see an opportunity for bravado on, the, on their part and ridicule on his. And when I read that story, I can't help but picture those who take a mocking tone toward Jesus today. You've met them. You've seen the memes on Facebook and the quotes and uh, the, the, uh, the sound bites on television and on YouTube, people who look at Christians, who look at the Bible, and who look at Jesus, and think that they can say something witty in response. Here's a couple for example. Respected atheist author Lawrence Krauss, a scientist who believes that humanity emerged from exploding stars, had this to say, forget Jesus, the stars died so you could be born. You can hear the wit and the mocking tone in what he's saying. You were born by stars, not some savior on a cross. Matt Dillahunty, host of the YouTube show, The Atheist Experience, said this, the God that Christians believe in is amazingly stupid. The blasphemy in those words, to say something like that. The very God who gave him the ability to speak, like a child sitting on their father's lap smacking him in the face. You can't slap me unless I sit you on my lap, right? Richard Dawkins, popular atheist author of The, of the God Delusion, that's a guy you've probably heard of because that's a popular book, had this to say. The God of the Old Testament, who we've learned is Jesus Christ. If there's one thing that I hope you've learned, that, that God, 
from the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Richard Dawkins says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. See, I could go on with more and more, but you get it. They see Jesus Christ, they see you, Christians, as his bride, and they laugh. They think it's funny. They mock. It's humorous. They are obviously intellectually superior to anything that involves faith, and so they laugh. And I read those quotes, and I see, I see Pilate dumbfounded as he looks at Jesus and doesn't see a revolutionary. I see the council who look at Jesus, and they, they're, they're putting their hands together with a smirk on their face, believing that finally they've accomplished what they set out to do. I see the soldiers giggling as they put a crown of thorns on the head of the Savior, not knowing that the very thing they do is the fulfillment of Scripture. See, if you'd look with me at uh, Psalm 22, I don't think I have it on the screen, but um, I'll, I'll read it for you quickly. Should have had it marked in my Bible. Psalm 22 says this. I'm sorry, it's in John. John 19, quoting Psalm 22. It says this. Um, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written, referencing the sign that says the king of the Jews. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they looked at his garments and they divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. This seems very random. Why is this in the text? But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, and this is the quote from Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, what's happening here is Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. If you remember about David, David is the king that God promised to build an everlasting kingdom. He was propped up to be the ideal king for Israel. And through David's line would come this king, Jesus Christ. And so this psalm, Psalm 22, is a prophecy about who this son of David would be like. And you see there in the text that as David's writing this psalm, some hundred, you know, 700, 800 years before Jesus Christ, David writes these words that they cast lots for my clothing and they divided it amongst themselves. See, what this prophecy is telling us is that there would be a king from the line of David who would reign forever, King Jesus. And here we have soldiers mocking Jesus Christ and fulfilling scripture because we serve a God who does things like that. What do you see when you look at Jesus? You see someone to be mocked, a joke, someone who's a prophet who said wise things but didn't die on a cross and didn't rise from the dead. When you look at Jesus, do you look at him the way the Israelites did, where they fashioned a king of their own imaginations, not according to Scripture? See, when you fashion a God of your own imagination, you commit idolatry. And what we tend to do in America in 2019 is we like to make a God in our mind who has our own substandard requirements. He's a God who's lacking holiness because he's okay with whatever it is that you do. God wouldn't tell me not to do that. That's oppressive. And so we continue on doing what we want. We create a God in our minds who lacks authority because he would never want to step on your toes or make you uncomfortable. We create a God in our minds who lacks glory because he's a mere copy of our own human, uh, of our own human imaginations. 
but he's not the God that we're presented with in Scripture. See, what do you see when you look at Jesus? Is he the giver of financial stability, the provider of quality friendships? Is he the champion of my suburban lifestyle who will never allow me to be, uh, to be unsafe? Or is he the Lord of the universe who's presented in glory like he is in this passage? See, the one that we're presented with here is a king whose kingdom is not of this world. It's far greater than this world. And we have to embrace the words that Jesus said to Pilate, that he came to bear witness about the truth. And the truth is we serve a crucified king who came to die for us so that we would have his kingdom. We would have his spirit reigning in our hearts, and we would extend his kingdom that way. See, this is a king who's not concerned about building a great nation. He's concerned about redeeming the entire world. He wants to take your sins and pin them onto the cross along with him 2,000 years ago. He wants to take your death and cause you to resurrect just like he did and just like you will if you believe in him. He is the God of the Bible and he's the God that we serve. This is the Jesus that we proclaim and this is the Jesus that I hope you put your faith and your trust in. Let's pray. God, it's no small thing that you've sent your son to a cross to die on our behalf. And it's no small thing that with him, he has taken our sins and borne it in his body of death on our behalf. See, you made him who, made no, who, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so I pray that we believe that, we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that we wouldn't turn back to any kind of a sinful lifestyle. Let us uphold and believe in and trust and submit to the Lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. We, like the Pharisees, are guilty of trying to be our own captains, being our own kings, not relinquishing our power and authority. But I pray that by your Spirit you would convict our hearts and rid us of that sinful wickedness. I pray that like the soldiers who mocked Jesus and saw him as a joke, that we wouldn't do that, but we would look at Jesus as holy and we would see him as our Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.